Father, thank you so much for this time. You are so faithful to us in many ways, uh, seen and unseen. Thank you for the blessing of people that gather uh, to worship you. We know that community is so central and important. Um, The church is important to you. You look on her with compassion and love. Um, We thank you for the opportunity to have a building to meet in. We thank you that we are healthy enough to meet today together. We just thank you because there's so many distractions and uh, things that might keep us from coming here today to worship you. But you are good and holy, and you saw fit to author this time. And I pray that because of that, we will use this time to your honor to make you glorified, to make Jesus look big and beautiful as he is. We love you so much. We praise your precious and holy name. Amen. So uh, as, as a preparation for today, um, and not to go on about schooling necessarily, but uh, taking an apologetics class this week, I don't know if you'd call this serendipity or providence, but we're talking a little bit about the problem of evil. Uh, the class is Introduction to Apologetics. And there is, we are not, I'm not going to give you a schooling here today, I do not think that I'm equipped enough or diligent in my studies enough to do that. Uh, But the point of the question has been uh, really good in in relationship to the scripture that Rodney uh, asked me to preach today, and particularly in thinking and considering and working through what the nature of evil looks like and how you can reconcile that with a God that is merciful and good and loving. And for the world, um, and I mean the secular world, That is a big sticking point, okay? And so the question is, especially if you're an atheist, well, how can God exist if suffering and evil exist? How can they really occupy the same space? And and then they go even further. How can God permit suffering? Because then the probability is if he permits it, he's not really good. And so there are many, many arguments and refutations of that concept. But one thing that we notice is the evil that occurs is not outside of God's sovereignty. Okay? And so that's a, that's a baseline we need to have in our minds today as we talk through the tribulation um, and the suffering and the things that the, the church at Smyrna was actually about to go through. Uh, not only what they were enduring, but what they were about to endure And so we need to understand that God is a governing God. He does not send us out to be the church and then withdraw his power from us. Instead, he governs over us with that power. And so in relationship to that, as I was thinking through, okay, that's that's really interesting. Your mind begins to churn through, okay, what's the association? What is this relative to? How can I understand this? And the first thing that really came to my mind was Joseph. Um, and that was a, that's an interesting case study in the Old Testament if you look at it, because Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And if you read the entirety of the story, it has years and years packed within it. But the ultimate culmination of that was God positioned Joseph as a result of evil so that people could be saved. Okay, And we're talking about actual physical saving. We're talking about people would live because of Joseph's wisdom of storing grain for a coming famine. And that included the Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrews. That ultimately led to their preservation. And so it was really interesting as I thought through that, I, that's one of my 
absolute favorite scriptures is when he talks to his brothers. He says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good that even this day, many people should be what? Saved. And so as I thought about it, I was like, okay, so God took the evil, not causing it, but guiding it to the good end. And, and folks say, okay, well, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a decent point. But overarching is, sometimes you don't see the outcome of that evil. You don't see the good that God can or does, in fact, achieve. Sometimes that good can be separated by generations, years, millennia. But ultimately, because mankind is limited, that's where the faith element enters in. We trust that even enduring things that we don't understand, even enduring hard times and difficulties, we look forward and trust in God's goodness at the end being accomplished. So as we enter into this, this conversation today about the tribulation of the church of Smyrna, I want you to understand that we don't have to always have the answer for what's going on at the time, but we do accept in faith that the Lord is loving and merciful, and he tells us so, and he shows us so, okay? Um, so without further ado, let's, let's break into this, start unpacking the scripture today. Uh, I want to read to you a bit about Smyrna, just so you have some context about what was going on in the city, um, and that will help you to understand what's going on in the church, okay? Uh, so this is, this is, I'm reading straight to you right now, uh, because I found this to be really useful, uh, so take notes if you will. But Smyrna is now in uh, modern Izmir, Turkey. It's the only one of the seven churches of Revelation 2 through 3, uh, the seven letters, the seven churches, that still exists. It is 35 miles north of Ephesus, a proud and beautiful city. Its coins were inscribed with the words, first of Asia in beauty and size. Temples of Apollos, Asclepius, Aphrodite, Cybele, and Zeus dotted the landscape of this beautiful pagan city. Politically, the city was close with Rome and the imperial cult. Take notice of that, which was marked by emperor worship. The Roman orator Cicero paid Smyrna a great compliment in calling her the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies. In AD 23, as a reward for her loyalty, Smyrna beat out 11 other cities for the right to build the first temple to honor Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar uh, was the one reigning when Christ was crucified. Couple this allegiance to Rome with a large and influential Jewish population, and Smyrna had all the ingredients for a hostile environment for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that is an interesting scenario and a unique one to be in the midst of. So you have political pressure, particularly from the Roman government and the imperial cult worship. You have, on the other hand, a Jewish people who are very against the idea of Christ. So you have two factions there putting pressure on believers in Smyrna. So that's really important to understand, just as a general context for where we are today, okay? And so, yeah, things are not going well there. They're going less than well uh, for that particular church. So let's find out who actually is speaking to them now in this letter that they write. So if you look at verse 8 with me, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and last who died and came to life. This is an amazing thing because I will tell you that as you study Scripture and as you engage in it, the important thing to do is to slow down. Okay? And so... A verse might seem to be very straightforward, and it is. They almost always are. 
But in some senses, your mind just tends to go, okay, got it, let's move on. But if you stop and look at this, it's very important to dwell on just the idea of who is speaking. So he recognizes it's the words of the first and the last. The first and the last. This is, in Greek, the protos and the eschatos, okay? So if you were to consider, there's a good illustration by C.S. Lewis, when he was asked about God's relationship to time, he took a piece of paper. He said, if you take that piece of paper and you draw a line on that paper, the line is time, the paper is God. So time is contained in God. Ultimately, he governs all sides of it. The first point to the very last point is governed by God. And so when you look at the words first and last, yes. And you're saying, okay, linearly, how can he be both at the beginning and at the end? Because he governs all of it outside within a sphere. And so he sees every individual point on the line of history. He sees what's going to happen tomorrow. He sees what's going to happen a month from now. He sees what's going to happen at the very last moment when the fullness of the Gentiles come in and he's, his hand is at the door and he opens up and he says, let's go get the bride. He sees it all. And, and what you will realize as we dive a little bit deeper is that is incredibly important to them understanding the nature of their tribulation. They have a God who is timeless, eternal, not confined like we are to this existence of minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour, week by week, and so on. So the next point he says is, who died and came to life. So in the one sense, you have a God who is absolutely divine, all-powerful, outside of time. But in the next sense, he says, you also have a God who entered into humanity. He stepped into time. So going with the paper and the line, yes, he contains it, so he steps into it. And what did he do when he stepped into it? He ministered, and then he died. Our Savior put on human flesh and died. Stop and think about that for a minute. That the same God who sees everything and can know everything all at once said, you know what? I'm going to come and put on human clothing flesh. I'm going to live there. I'm going to be amongst them. He was going to be tempted just like we are. He's going to experience human emotion, everything that we, that we know and do. So ultimately, he could say, yeah, I'm a high priest because I know exactly how they feel. I know exactly what's going on in their mind. Jesus Christ knew the hearts of men. He knew them intimately. So when he goes and he comes and he lives, and then he dies, that would be really sad if that were the end of the story, right? So what if, imagine just if it just ended there. The words of the first and last who died. Oh, okay, that's really like super anticlimactic, right? How does that help you to understand the nature of Christ? It doesn't. The necessary component is the resurrection. So, who died and came to life. Have you ever heard of another human being in all of human history who has died and come to life? No. Jesus. That's it. He has the power over life and death. This is what absolutely makes him transcendent, above all, sovereign, okay? So you have a God who is ultimately high, who experienced humanity, and who has power over death and the grave. I don't know if you recall back in chapter 1, he actually says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, 
I'm alive how long? Forevermore. And he has the keys to what? Death and Hades. It's done. That part's done. That's an amazing way to open the letter. If I was writing a letter or an email to somebody and I was like, problem solved, but let me tell you a little bit about the problem. That'd be pretty cool, right? Open with the solution. Hey, I'm here to address it today. I've got you covered. But here's a little bit about the problem. That's pretty impacting. And the fact that Christ opens with that is like, okay, we get it. Now we understand who he is. So when we move on, we get a little bit better context now with Christ in relationship to the tribulation of the church. Let's look there at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of who? Satan. So he says, I know. He says, I know that I can see in every letter to the churches. And when I stopped and thought about this, I thought, man, there, I actually marked in my Bible that there are two ways you can read that, but you can read that a lot of ways. So I want you to think about every time you've heard, I know, okay? So you can hear the indignant, I know, well, yes, that's right, I know, you know? Sorry, I gave it the British accent there, but you know, I love the British if you're listening at any point. Um, so there's that I know. There's also the, the excited, I know, you know, like the friends Monica exclamation, I know, right? And then there's also this, the, uh, there's, there's, yeah, I'm going to consult the notes here. That's probably best, but the submissively, I know, I know. Yeah, I get it. But there is a tone that we can read here based on the context. And I think it's the one that you have when your child comes to you and they are sobbing because they fell off their bike and they wounded themselves and it's bleeding and they're scared because it didn't work out the way they thought it would. And he says, I know. There is such compassion in that tone. I know. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. I know it. Is there not a greater testimony to the love and compassion of Christ that he says to them, I know, I know, I see. How great is that to behold? How great is that to remember about our Jesus who understands because he came here and died and came back to life. He understands how we feel. That is, I could say nothing else today. That makes him so beautiful, so big. That's our Savior. That's incredible. So we look at, okay, he says, I know. That's compassionate. But what does he know? Okay, see, sees our tribulation. We, we, just, we just established a little bit earlier, things are not going well for the church at Smyrna. I mean, let's face it. You had a Roman government that wants you to worship the emperor, and, they're, and they're, they consider you to be an ally. And then on the other hand, you've got the Jewish folks, who many of which would fight you to the death on the resurrection of Christ, particularly the Sadducees. They were in it to win it. Ask Paul. Look at Acts. Most of his fights and struggles there at the end were on account of him defending the resurrection and, res and, and reasoning toward it. So, yeah, it's not going well. There is, there is something to say that Christ says, okay, I'm also recognizing who your enemies are. And forgive me, but I am going to read straight from here. 
said this is similar to the language Christ uses when he's talking to the Pharisees in John 8. It's important that we remember this. Remember he calls the Jews here a synagogue of Satan. Listen to what he says in John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. If you mapped out what would be called like the cast of characters, right, in this whole scenario, we have Jesus that's addressing the church, we have the Roman government, we have the Jews. We all have Satan. We also have Satan in the midst of this. I think this is a really interesting study. If you just, if you just sit back and go, okay, who all is involved in here, right? And notice that when he says the synagogue of Satan, that's really interesting. So it's kind of like they worship together contrary to God. That's how he recognizes these Jews. Remember that we distinguish Jewish from inward and outward, right? The circumcision was a sign outwardly of a Jew. But the inward Jew is one that is of the promise, the child of promise from Abraham. So we have to make that distinguishment. And these are the Jews who are not Jews in that sense, children of promise, heirs to salvation, okay? And so he makes, I believe that Christ makes that distinguishment so that they can understand, yeah, they are actually now being used, okay? So don't ever let it escape your mind that Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, can use folks to make you stumble as a believer. He will do it. If you think that that's surprising, I want you to think about what it means for him to be the prince of the power of the air. That he is roaming around right now, seeking whom he can devour. Those are important words. It's not meant to strike fear in you. It's meant to raise your guard. Okay? You oughtn't to be afraid of that. You ought to guard against that. So let's look at, let's look at the other angle, the other side of this, where Christ says, I know what's going on. And then he has that aside, which in some, in some translations is literally kind of capped off by parentheses. He says, but you're rich. I know your poverty, but you're rich. That's, that's a paradox, right? You can't be... It's logically incoherent. It's impossible. You can't be rich and poor at the same time. They don't fit. You're either one or the other, right? So what that tells us is, okay, let's, that's meant to get our attention. Let's pay attention to what's happening here. So in one sense, we know that they were actually physically impoverished. History tells us that. So he must be talking about spiritually. Spiritually wealthy. So this out of all of what's going on here, I think Christ is telling us, I'm actually concerned with where you end up spiritually. I know your physical circumstances, but the most important thing is where your spiritual circumstances end up. Listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Christ's words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Goodness, that sounds like what's going on here, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
I thought a lot about this, and I debated whether or not to share this particular illustration, but my boy, so I have one boy and three girls. My boy is, is eight years old. My oldest is 10. She's a girl. What I've noticed about my son is he shares greatly genetics with his father. He sees and he wants all the time, in so much that we fight almost every Saturday the battle of, I have found something new that I want you to buy me. And it's incredible because this goes on over and over and over again. And so what's happened now is I started pointing him back to, hey, two weeks ago, you got a Nerf gun, and then I bought you 250 bullets because they were really cheap, right? Because you get them off Amazon, it's like $9. And he was super excited. He did not ask for that. I got it for him. And, you know, it was really cheap, but I thought, he's going to love this. He's got some neighbor friends he plays with. He, this is going to keep him satisfied for a while. No. That was false. That ended poorly, my logic there. Because yesterday, we were on to, I won a Sonic watch. A Sonic watch. How much is it? 16 bucks. Again, not overwhelmingly expensive, but it's a principle. Am I right? I mean, think about, think about this. And before that, it was a bike. And before that, you could just, I mean, I could just go on. It's everything. He wants everything. And I keep encouraging him, bro, if I get you this, you are only going to want something different in two weeks. No, I'm not. No. He's pretty, he's pretty decided, okay, at this point. I am not going to want anything different. This is what I want. Penultimately, this is going to satisfy me. Okay, all right. Let's get it, but we're not going to have this conversation in two weeks. We do. We have the conversation about every two weeks, every week, sometimes. And the funny thing is, is when I remind him of that, you would think that I had run over him with a truck. His grief and moaning and lament is dramatic. Shakespeare could not have written the drama that my son concocts in these moments. I have never seen anything like it except for me when I was his age. And he gives me some competition for that age frame, okay? And so when I thought about this this week, I thought, yeah, that's right. I get it. Because I see stuff I want now. I am 30 years older than he is. I see stuff I want now. And then sometimes I'm like, how can I get that? That's going to make me happy. I can see it. It'll make me happy for a while. The further you progress in your Christian walk, the more you realize just how really unsatisfying those things actually are. Try explaining that to him? No. But what we have here is Christ saying, I see you don't have a lot, but you do. You have a ton. You are persecuted, but your reward, heaven. And we're going to get more to that reward here in just a minute. But how incredible that we serve a father that says, I don't care about physical stuff right now. This stuff is about your investment for beyond the end. Beyond the end. And honestly, it's so difficult to imagine eternity in Christ's presence against the wants, needs, and sufferings of right now. It's almost impossible. 
we don't yet have a full understanding of what eternity looks like in comparison. We just don't. We're still here. But I can tell you, in the midst of all this, he is concerned with what they do and how they react to the persecution and the tribulation that they're currently in. And if there's anything that he's saying, it's a certainty. If you are walking with Jesus and you aim to do it in a culture that you are in, you are undoubtedly going to face persecution. It is not even a question. It just isn't. If you're doing it right, you're going to face more persecution. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in John 16. It's in verses 22 and 23. He says, Behold, pay attention, look. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If you could read this passage and take away anything from it that is less than Jesus, you failed yourself in that reading. This thing is about Jesus. The church at Smyrna just happens to be the central point that points to Jesus, okay? Everything is about what Jesus is doing in that church, through that church, for his glory and the glory of the Father. So what does he say to them? You're not alone. I'm not alone. How scary is it to be? Have you ever been able, have you ever gotten in trouble in a group? It doesn't feel quite the same as when you're singled out and you get in trouble, right? I remember in class, you know, we'd have a substitute and she would be like, I'm this I'm leaving a note for your teacher, and you're just like, okay, I've got I'm one out of like 26 here. I doubt that this punishment's gonna be too severe, since it's not an individual thing. But if you get your name written down. Oh man, for me, as a, as a real believer in anxiety, oh, before the teacher got back, horrible. My wife just shared a story with me the other day, and um, I misunderstood what she was saying, but I thought that she said that the students were going to have to wait until the following Monday for their punishment. And I was like, oh man, the fear associated with waiting and being like, what, what am I going to have to tell my parents about this? What is going to happen to me? It is almost overwhelming. It's too much to bear to wait the length of a weekend to find out, okay, two detentions or suspension or even worse, you know, like ISS or something. But the funny thing is, is he's telling them right now, hey, church at Smyrna, you're not in this alone. We know that because we look back to his actual words before this. So when we talk about using scripture to define scripture or scriptural context, it's good for you to remember what else has Jesus said about this? And he said so much about persecution, tribulation, suffering in his ministry. So let's, let's move on a little bit further. So he says, it's the Jews that are slandering you, but they're not, they are not Jews actually, but are a synagogue of Satan. And he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. When you read, do not fear what you're about to suffer, my first reaction to this is a very fleshly one because I think, 
I have been told several times, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. Has that ever worked for you? Have you ever been like, oh, thank you. That is genius. <laughs> Just don't be afraid, right? No, that's never quite worked the same. But I will tell you this. In moments of like deep trouble and anxiety, there has been a part of me that I've confessed this to my wife. I wish Jesus could just sit right here. I wish he would just sit right next to me and say, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Because it's Jesus talking. It's not mom or dad. It's not brother or sister. It's not colleague. It's not even pastor. It's Jesus. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The other part of that is, oh good, there's more coming right? If the sarcastic in you comes out, it's like, I thought things were bad. No, it can get worse. I would think, this is not going well. But then I would remember, who's talking to me? The first and the last who died and came back to life. Mm. Good reminder, good context. Listen then what he says. Behold, pay attention Look, focus. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Oh, man. That's great. So we've had it had pretty rough already, but now we're getting ready to be thrown into prison. You don't want to read the next part. Be faithful unto what? Death. And I will give you the What? crown of life. Oh man. So there is, my mind is crowded with the negative. Oh, this is great. Prison. Satan puts me there. (sighs) Death. Holy Moses, right? What is going on here, folks? This is what he's got for us right now? And then he says something about a crown of life at the end. That I would not, I'll be honest with you, I'll confess to you, I don't think I could compute that just yet. There is a part of me that is thinking, and believe you me, prison then, in that context, in that government, prison now, prison now is like the Bahamas compared to what was going on then. So when you look at that, you're thinking, I would be thinking, okay, this is about to get a lot worse. So you have a decision to make at that point, right? Do you stay or do you go? Do you hold on to Jesus or do you say, it's not worth it? That is a question you have to answer in every period of your life where you come up against persecution, where you come into suffering for the sake of Jesus. That's the question you have to answer. Do I stay or do I go? But look at what Jesus is telling How long? Ten days. Okay, say what you want. I don't know. Various theologians interpret ten days different ways, okay? Ten church ages, ten thousand million years, an eternity, a speck, infinitesimally, in the finite linear time. It's, it's, okay. Take it for what it says in the text. Ten days. What Jesus is saying, tribulation has an expiration date. It will end. It will end when it ends, 
or it will end in your death. But it will end. There is such a mercy to Jesus to tell them that it's going to end. How many times in the Psalms does David cry out, How long, O Lord? How long must I go through this? How long must I cry out to you? But Jesus in his mercy says, It's going to end. Looks like it's going to be soon if you accept the text for what it says. Ten days may seem like an eternity when you're in the midst of it, though. Probably will. But at the end, you get a reward. So, the next point here, faithfulness leads to real life. I cannot imagine that the folks at Smyrna thought, this is, I'm living my best life now. This is as good as it can get. Yeah, I can't imagine they were thinking that. And even, even when they got the news that it's about to get a little bit worse, I can imagine maybe there was a moment of like, what, I'm getting a crown for this? This is a way that we can understand it in human terms. The crown was set on the head of the victor. Victor won the prize, won the race, overcame. Hmm, did we not just see earlier that Jesus had overcome the world? I think we did. And now he's saying, you're going to get a crown of life. What did he say at the end of last week? To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Oh, that is, the crown of life is Jesus forever. Who cares about a crown? I don't care about a crown. I don't care about a mansion. I don't care about streets of gold. I care about Jesus. He saved us. He is worth it. He is awesome. He is compassion and mercy and love like you will never understand. And then you get to be with Him forever. Forever. You can't even understand forever. Our human mind is so entrained in cycles of life and death, beginnings and ends, we don't even understand what it means to be forever. So for these people in Smyrna at this church, man, think about ten days. Let's just assume it was ten days. When they are in heaven, if they have full knowledge of their history of life on earth, ten days will shrink in size for every year and every ten years that they are in eternity. And pretty soon, ten days will seem like a breath. And not even that much. It goes on but it doesn't go on forever. And his encouragement to them is to stay faithful. Now, where does that faith come from? If I left you with this and I said, here are um, two ways that you can undergo tribulation and come out successful on the other side. And if you'll buy my book, you'll also see another five ways that I recommend. And you could do that, and I could do that. That would be an immense disservice to you. Because what do we understand? Where does faith come from? Well, it's not something that I manufactured. Because if I manufactured it, it would look like me having left the church years ago. If it was my faith. But it's the faith that comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Opening and enlightening our heart to the knowledge of God. 
That's where the faith comes from. It is a gift of God. A gift. You cannot build it in yourself in such a way that that faith will ever endure anything. You can try. And the world wants you to. The world wants you to believe that there's 10 steps to happiness. That self-esteem in your core, you need that and you need to build that and work on it daily. You need to introspect and enlighten yourself and attain, you know, uh, I don't know, alien babies after paying in to advance to the next level. The world wants you to think that you can build it for yourself, but you cannot. And the church at Smyrna, they would never be able to survive that tribulation were it not for Jesus Christ. In the end, he is the author of faith, author perfecter, finisher of it. So then he goes on to say, and says this in every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this is where I love the positive statement. You get a crown of life, but I love it even more. Here's what won't happen to you. And the what won't happen is the way he ends the letter. And that is phenomenal. Because as we advance and as you all advance in your study of Revelation, you're going to find out towards the end that the second death is not awesome. I'm going to read you the list of who is there at the second death and what that is. It is the lake of fire burning. Endless. Who is there? Death. Hades. The cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, the beast, the false prophet. That's just the ones I could find. And you're thinking, well, that's only like 10, 11, 12. No, 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 no. That is the company of types that engages in the lake of fire. This is not a hellfire and brimstone sermon. That is not where this ends up. But it tells you who's there. That's found in Revelation 21. And so, as I was reading that list, I was like, yowza, that is bananas. That actually makes a lot of sense. Especially the cowardly, the detestable, the faithless, in the context of what he's talking to Smyrna about. But notice the most important thing about the second death and that place is who isn't there. In that list, who isn't there is our Savior and the bride. So, hell is not hell because it hurts. Hell is hell because Jesus is not there. Our God cannot occupy that space. It is reserved for everyone who does not believe in him. But he is not there. Just let that sink in for a minute. I don't want to be where he isn't. I just don't. And you don't. This is the same Jesus that said, abide in me. Plug in. I'm the true vine. He wants to get you in connected to the source of life. He's living water. He's the bread of life. There is nothing apart from him that is even close to life. 
And I say that to you today because, folks, 2020 is going off with amazing fireworks almost every day, right? And I've seen folks waking up to be like, okay, what chapter of Revelation are we in today, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. 2020 is bad, okay? For a lot of different reasons. But the world wants us to think that the answers are all found up, wrapped up in mankind, right? Well, it's like, if you guys, if we just lock arms together, we'll get through this. If you just come over and we'll just, we'll just talk about it on social media until it just gets right, you know? And it's like, man, that's it. If you will just drink yourself to death, you don't even have to think about any of this, right? I mean, just, yeah, hit it up. Go home, anesthetize, wake up the next day, feeling lousy, take a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you, recycle over and over again, right? Or the world says, you know what? You know, you don't even have to be here. You can be like in some other plane if you'll just meditate enough, okay? Just unplug, right? The world has so many solutions that don't involve Christ, but at the moment that you begin to see that mankind thinks that mankind is the answer and that propels itself forward through any number of troubles, what you see and what will build itself up is a new religion, okay? And this isn't like weirdness. I'm not getting into like any weirdness here. What I'm saying is because mankind will find that mankind is central, if you're not worshiping the emperor, you're going to be in trouble someday. If we tarry long enough and the Lord's plan goes on long enough, to be a Christian in the United States of America will ultimately represent to you some resistance some tribulation. We don't know the day or the seasons of all the things, okay? So don't get like all twisted up in that. But think about the fact that 20 years ago, we can say it was a lot different. 20 years before that was a lot different. 20 years before that, a lot different. Nearly every new generation says it's worse than it was before, okay? So let's admit that. So when we look at Revelation, the encouragement to us, we have a king who oversees all this and is coming back. Our story's not over. The end is not the end. And when mankind resurrects the worship of the emperor, just be like, no, I'm not doing that. Because in the end, it's worth it. I want to leave you guys today with something, and <laughs> it was new to me, and I found it, and I thought, how in the world have I never heard this before? Um, but this is about one of the early church fathers. His name was Polycarp. Um, I'm just going to read you this narrative, and that is my conclusion, okay? I'm going to leave you with this because I, and my, my wife actually asked me, she's like, why are you leaving with them with this? And I was like, because I want you to see what it looks like on the ground for someone from Smyrna to resist the temptation to deny Christ up until the end. Polycarp was an old man at least 86, and probably the last surviving person to have known the Apostle John. Following the martyrdom of Germanicus, Roman officials sought out Polycarp, but he initially eluded them. However, when they could not find him, they seized two young men from his own household and tortured them into confession. The sheriff, called Herod, was impatient to bring Polycarp to the stadium so that he might fulfill his special role to share the sufferings of Christ, while those who betrayed him would be punished like Judas. 
Police and horsemen came with a young man at supper time on the Friday with their usual weapons as if coming out against a robber. That evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. When he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. They were amazed at his age and steadfastness, and some of them said, Why do we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately he called for food and drink for them and asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. They agreed, and he stood and prayed so full of the grace of God that he could not stop praying for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. When he finished praying, they put him on a donkey and took him into the city. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. If you didn't get this, the atheists were the people that didn't worship Caesar. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I'll throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them. Polycarp replied, It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I'll have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and then it's extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment. Reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. It was all done, and the time it takes to tell. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks from the shops and public baths. The Jews, as usual, were keen to help. But when they went to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So they simply bound him with his hands behind him like a distinguished ram chosen from a great flock for sacrifice. Then the fire was lit, and the flame blazed furiously. Eventually, when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. When he did this, such a great quantity of blood flowed that the fire was extinguished. Be faithful unto death is an easier thing to say than it is to do. But in the end, the worth of Jesus surpasses that. Paul was convinced that these present sufferings, you couldn't even compare to the glory set before us. Colossians tells us that the riches of glory are Christ Jesus. On the day of the resurrection, I can only imagine the disappointment of Satan who thought he had won. The world, when Christ returns, all the world will bow before him. That's our king. And he is coming back. The time doesn't matter. He's coming back. 
and whether the tribulation and your present suffering expires before you die or it expires by virtue of him returning, whatever the case is, he is with you. You are not alone in Christ Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, this is the reason to know him so that you don't have to go through the mess of life alone. Believe me, I wouldn't want to finish 2020 without Jesus at this point. My encouragement to you today is don't walk out of here thinking, okay, I got to get more faith. I got to be more faithful. Nope. Get on your knees. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you up and give you the faith that only the Father gives and rest and abide in Christ. He's got the rest of it worked out. Let's pray.